Coming up today, we explain why coronavirus is hitting startups so hard, investigate the crisis facing Airbnb and its hosts, and find out how researchers have cracked a secret paedophile code. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when the NHS started testing its Bluetooth-powered coronavirus contact tracing app at an RAF base in North Yorkshire. The app tells people they are either okay now or need to isolate and stay at home based on their location history and potential close contacts with people who are known to have contracted COVID-19. This was also the week when England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, gave a bit of a reality check, stating that it was unrealistic to expect life to return to normal anytime soon and that social distancing measures would need to stay in place at least for the rest of the year. The only total exit from the coronavirus crisis will require a vaccine or drugs. This week, Richard Branson offered up Necker Island as collateral in exchange for a government bailout of his ailing Virgin Atlantic airline. The billionaire businessman is seeking £500 million from the UK government and a £700 million bailout from the Australian government to cover the losses caused by coronavirus. And finally, it was also the week when Twitter said it would take action against 5G conspiracy theories. The social network said it would delete unverified claims that could lead directly to the destruction of telecoms infrastructure. Splendid story selection, everyone. Um, we got a lot of emails this week, um, so much so that we're going to drip feed them out throughout the podcast. A few of you got in touch about my suggestion that we ban negative facts. Everybody wanted us to keep the negative facts, so we're going to keep doing that. Um, Mayita got in touch to say that the weekly facts are their favourite part of the podcast and also contributed that the record for eating a whole onion raw is... 45 seconds. They also subscribed to our magazine because of the promotion, which we'll read out again in a second. Good to have you on board. All right, what did we learn this week? Let's start with you, Natasha. Oh, okay. Um, Space smells like steak, um, which I didn't know. Um, Astronauts that return from spacewalks describe smelling seared steak and hot metal when they're out and about. But it's not because space smells like steak. It's because we smell like steak. Well, they smell like steak. So the stink <laughs> that they, the stink that they produce inside their suits was what they were smelling, and they inhale high energy vibrations produced that mix within the air, and that's really disgusting. So we smell like steak, and therefore space smells like steak. That's what I learned this week. Sorry, are the astronauts cooking inside the suits? I, I don't know. Because I wasn't aware that any of us smelt like steak. I I suppose different people smell like different things. Um. Yeah, all right. If you think (laughs) you smell like steak, podcast at wired.co.uk. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Uh, I learned that uh, Sweden is one of the closest countries, at least in Europe, um, to going completely 
to be going completely cashless. Um, so just 1% of Sweden's GDP circulates as cash. Uh, and that's compared to 11% in the Eurozone as a whole. And generally, there is a big debate going on uh, in the country about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. That fact is neither depressing nor uplifting. It's just a neutral a fact. fact. Very neutral. There it is, straight down the middle. Vicky Turk, what have you got? Well, I've actually got kind of a, a positive fact this week. So apologies to all of you who, who wanted more misery. Um, my fact is that we could uncover landmines by planting seeds. Hat tip to uh, Wired's Andy Vandervelle for showing me this one. Um, so this was reported in Nature. Researchers have made a genetically modified type of cress that changes colour from green to red when it detects nitrogen dioxide gas in the soil which landmines give off Um, now the work is very early they haven't done any field tests yet this is just in the lab and the plants would only be able to detect landmines close to the surface although this is where most landmines are found while it does sound cool however it may not be the best solution to the landmine problem politics is perhaps a bit more needed here than science really and the real challenge is stopping landmines from being laid down in the first place a depressing end to a cheering fact. Um, my fact is just plain weird. I learned this week that Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky used to be a competitive bodybuilder. And quite a good one, in fact. In 2001, he came seventh in the National Physique Committee Teen and Collegiate National Championship Middleweight Division. You showed us some you... pictures on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't believe me, the internet never forgets. And Brian Chesky's um, competition page is there for all to see. You can order a video, a, a DVD of him flexing for about 30 bucks, if that's your kind of thing. Um, we'd just like to apologise very briefly for Matt Reynolds's subpar audio quality last week. He's had a firm telling off and uh, one week suspension from the podcast while he sorts all that out. Um, sorry about that technical glitch and we hope that the audio quality is a bit better this week. As mentioned a few minutes ago, um, we've got a special subscription offer running at the moment that a few podcast subscribers have very kindly taken up. Matt Burgess, what is that offer? So for a limited time, you can get a whole year of Wired magazine for the low, low price of just £12. Uh, Quite a few of you have been in touch already to let us know you subscribe, so thank you very much for that. Uh, To join the club, uh, you could have to head to Wired co.uk forward slash subscribe um the offer is only available to um uk uh, based readers uh, but we're also making um a digital edition of the magazine uh, completely free to download from uh, the app store uh, this month as well so if you head to whatever app store is on your iphone or android device uh, search for wired uk you can download uh, all of the magazine for free top tip Um, Justin slid into my DMs to ask a question about his new Wired magazine subscription. Hi, James, he wrote, how can I be sure that the magazine is safe to touch and virus free? So this is a concern that a lot of people have with online deliveries and grocery shops and stuff like that. If you are concerned, the best thing to do is to leave the magazine somewhere safe. If you can leave it outside your house or in a garage or just somewhere that you're unlikely to touch it for a few days before you read it. So researchers in the US found that COVID-19 can remain infectious on cardboard for up to 24 hours and on plastic for up to two to three days. So if you want to be super safe, just give it a couple of days before 
reading it. And the bag that your magazine comes in is also fully compostable, so make sure you put it in the right bin. Our first story this week is about startups, which, like a lot of us, aren't having a great time through the coronavirus crisis, Natasha. Yeah, so startups are in massive trouble. Uh, not only are they the most vulnerable businesses or among the most, most vulnerable businesses here in the UK, but also they don't qualify for the emergency business loans schemes that have been offered by Chancellor Rishi Sunak last month. So we have, in less than a year after the government heralded a new era of startups, um, a whole generation of businesses are basically in freefall as investment completely dried up during the coronavirus crisis. A petition was started by VC funds, angel investors and business representatives, and they warned that the government, if the government does not rescue them, thousands of startups would fold in the coming months. So this is a this is a very, very bad situation. And they're saying that, um, you know, if if the government doesn't do anything, this is this is going to be dire for for thousands and thousands of people who have started businesses, not just in the last year, but the last five, 10 years. So on Monday of this week, um, we're at the time of recording Thursday on the podcast, the government responded with a stimulus package of over £1 billion. This would mean uh, that taxpayers would take on equity in businesses and buy debt in others. Problem solved, right? Not really. So analysts at Bohurst have claimed that only a quarter or 7,629 companies will be eligible for government help and the remainder will be left to fend for themselves. They also claimed that repayment of these government loans comes with a 100% premium, which means that any small business that asks and gets the loan would have to pay back double what they borrowed on top of an 8% interest rate to avoid conversion. This is a move that's been described as extortionate. And once the government actually owns part of the business, they can sell their stake to whoever they want, which means that competitors could end up buying part of your business or you could end up with investors that you don't want to work with in the first place that have just sort of come in through the back door. The SFC has claimed that the main people benefiting from this funding won't actually be the startups that have been asking for help. It will be VCs as they use the fund to tide over their portfolio companies. But this might mean that in and they don't invest in other businesses themselves. So startups could still fail. Um, and the only people profiteering might be the big investors uh, that have big portfolio companies in the first place. Even even bearing all that in mind and, and seeing how many flaws there are in this, in this rescue plan, the most difficult part will be qualifying in the first place. So the only companies that can qualify for government help at the moment are those that have raised over £250,000 in funding, which leaves out a bunch of businesses that are still at seed stage. Yeah, and it's not really just the small startups that are affected by this either, is it? Uh, we're seeing some of the sort of the biggest companies in the UK uh, saying that they're struggling with um, with their finances and sort of the lack of business and stuff like that. So it's, it's more than just t- tiny, small startups, isn't it? Yeah, so people might think that businesses that employ thousands of people that are well-known household um, names now and, and brands that we all use are going to be exempt from this situation. But in fact, that's not the case. We've seen a load of high growth businesses that have never turned a profit that's saying that they're extremely vulnerable. We've had loads of them furloughing their staff, hundreds of and thousands of workers that have been sort of told you can't work anymore, we can't afford you. And they're basically relying on long-standing investors to stand by them and see them through this crisis. Um, for companies that are relying on customer spending, on consumer spending, on people going out of their houses and using their products, this might not be enough. Um, the most high-profile cry for help that we've seen over the last few weeks has been from Deliveroo, which is one of the businesses that continued operating throughout this crisis. Um, it was sort of deemed that their workers were essential workers and that um, a lot of re- restaurants and pubs would rely on them to deliver their um 
food and make sure that their businesses could continue operating. But even that hasn't been enough to kind of say Deliveroo. Deliveroo last, in the last week had told the Comp Competition and Markets Authority that it um, needed desperately for them to green light a deal from Amazon to take over part of their business. Um, they basically told the competition watchdog that if it didn't let the deal go through, it wouldn't be able to survive the crisis. Um, this meant that the CMAs decided to actually clear both Amazon takeover, which would hand the e-commerce giant 16% of Deliveroo, and um, also the merger between rivals Just Eat and Takeover.com. So it's a huge amount of movement. Basically, the CMAs decided that it's better to have Amazon get a foothold in the market and own part of Deliveroo, then let Deliveroo completely fall by the wayside. So it's, it's huge news, but also a mark of how badly hit all these businesses have been by this situation. So where do investors fit in with this? Because startups usually rely on investment from, you know, venture capitalists or angel investors to get by and, and investors have still been investing right yeah they have so what we've what we've seen is that the appetite for investment hasn't yet dried up so in 30 days to april the 5th 164 companies closed investments this is a 40 percent increase compared to the month before so we've had like digital identity startup on fido that you know secured 100 million we've had a science spin-off um lab uh Perspective from Oxford University securing 28.8 million, um, flying taxi company Lilium um, and Kazoo uh, raising all money. But but this is this is is not really indicative of what is going on in the market. All of this money was already in VCs' coffers before this crisis hit. So they had that money and they have to spend it. There's no use just keeping it in um, in the bank and waiting to be spent. So what, what we're seeing now is sort of the last of the summer wine, basically. Fundraising is expected to take a massive hit in the coming months as they run out of portfolio money and they have to pick and choose investments that they back. What um, analysts have been saying is that by the second half of this year, these cash reserves will be over and the full effects of the economic hit will be definitely felt. And this will happen at the same time as startups run out of money completely themselves and will be desperate from external investment. So frankly, the timing for this couldn't be worse and the worst is still yet to come. It's a weird situation for the UK government to step in and prop up businesses that very often aren't set up to be profitable anyway, right? So many of these startups, Delivery is quite a good example, have really, really struggled to turn a profit because they invest so much money in growth. So is it wrong that the government should be stepping in here? Not really. I mean, if you think about the sheer amount of people that they employ, um, we're looking at a lot of uh, a lot of impact if they decide not to rescue these startups and they go under looking about a quarter of the UK population is employed by a category either startup or high growth company so if they didn't rescue them that would have a huge economic hit and there is a responsibility on the behalf of the government to do something but but what's happened here is that just the same as all the other business loans that we've seen in the past few weeks, this is kind of like a plaster on a huge, gaping, oozing, gigantic wound. It's, it's not going to solve anything. It's just tiding over for the time being, and it won't solve the more inherent issues that are going on in the market. So it, more people are going to lose their jobs. Yes, more businesses are going to go under. Absolutely. Um, and, and things are going to get a bit dire in the months to come. So it's it's sort of like an extreme stress test for businesses. They might be able to get a respite from the government for the time being, but they're going to have to pay a lot more later if they do. Um, if they don't, they're going to have to rely on investors to try and somehow rescue them um, and, and see if, if, if that can tie them through. But, but more importantly, we're going to see um, companies that have lean operations and good strategic 
kind of measures in place survive this um, and others won't be so lucky. It's, it's, it's really a matter of, of luck. It'll be a trial by fire, definitely, for the UK startup scene. Um, this, is a, this is a sector that was already really, really concerned about Brexit and what that might mean for their businesses. Um, so it's not great, not great timing at all for them. But it will hopefully weed out all of those uh, companies that had very little substance um, and were simply riding the wave of investors wanting to splash cash. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a dire situation, to be honest. But there's, as you say, there's good and bad here. There may be an element of weeding out startups that were always selling snake oil. And that will be the same across the economy. There'll be an awful lot of companies that were badly run that will fall by the wayside. But the concern is, I suppose, from government across the economy, not just amongst startups, is that there are an awful lot of good companies that this pandemic hit really, really hard at a particularly crucial time in their development that they just couldn't ride it out. And there may be some real gems in there that do get lost. Yeah, there's going to be definitely startups that fall through the gaps and it's going to be a massive shame. It's, it's going to see a slimming down of the market for sure. Um, but it's, it's all a matter of luck. That's, that's the big trouble here. If you've got really good investors and you're lucky enough to have raised a funding round just before this all happened or in the first few months of this happening, you might be okay. It might be enough to tide you over. But for a lot of businesses that have not been lucky, that are not in sectors that are profiteering uh, from the crisis at the moment, this is basically a game over. Um, so it is... If you think about the way the government was talking about startups just a year ago, Theresa May, who was prime minister at the time, saying, you know, this is going to be a new age of startups. We want a new uh, generation of unicorns coming to the fore. It's just worlds apart, basically. It's completely blown up in their face. This is not happening anymore. It's, it's not realistic. And it's not it, the impact of this is going to be felt for years. This is not just going to be a, a few months of, of pain for these startups. We're going to see a lot of really good businesses going down the pan because of this. And it's going to be a massive shame. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to share your pain. Do you work for a startup? Are you a startup founder? How is your company coping through this pandemic? And are there any lessons that you can share with the rest of the podcast audience and wider startup community about how to successfully make it through this crisis? Podcast at Wired. .co.uk. Our second story is also about a startup, but one of the bigger ones. In fact, probably the biggest yet to go public startup in the world. It's fair to say that it's not been a great few weeks for Airbnb. According to one rental analytics firm, new bookings on Airbnb are down 85% with cancellation rates close to 90%. Revenue generated by Airbnb's platform in March alone wiped $1 billion off the bookings market. And with much of the world still on lockdown, those numbers are unlikely to get better anytime soon. That's bad news for Airbnb, but one of the most hyped startups in the world has lots of friends it can call on. So Airbnb has raised a billion dollars in funding, reportedly with a rather hefty interest rate and a further billion dollars in senior debt. While that's a lot of debt to take on and Airbnb is burning through cash right now, it will probably get through this crisis. The problem for Airbnb is what's bad news for it is really, really, really bad news for its hosts. Some people in the Airbnb host community are referring to what's happening at the company as an apocalypse. It might be a tad dramatic and it's probably more suitable to think of it as like an enema. And we're all familiar with how they work, right? 
Well, let's keep the podcast PG. Um, but um, yeah, do do explain to us what you mean by this um, um, rather uh, interesting visual. How does that apply to Airbnb? Well, um, Airbnb maintains that it's powered by local hosts. This is a common line that the company trots out. And regular listeners to the podcast will have heard me talking about this quite a bit. The reality is rather different. Airbnb isn't really a sharing economy platform anymore. It's a hotel chain. So while Airbnb doesn't own any of this infrastructure, it's relying on thousands, millions of people across the world who do own this infrastructure. The problem is they don't actually own it. So let's think of Airbnb in terms of a hotel chain. It's got 7 million listings. That's listings, not individual rooms, which makes it bigger than the top 10 hotel chains combined, which have 5.48 million guest rooms. In many markets, as many as half the listings on Airbnb are advertised by hosts with at least one other listing. And I don't know about you, but I don't know many people who are in a financial position to own more than one home that they regularly live in or have more than one spare room within their home that they could make available on Airbnb, right? This isn't a common thing that you're, you're, you're not all hiding spare rooms that you're renting out and making a killing, right? No, it's probably a small percentage of people that you're sort of talking about that fall into that category, I would, one would assume. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's very small, in fact. So data from AirDNA, which is an online rental analytics firm, um, shows that there are 1.1 million listings on Airbnb in the United States, and about 600,000 of those are from hosts that have at least one other listing. So that's about 55%. Further, around 600,000 of those 1.1 million listings are also available for more than six months of the year. So these are both key indicators of properties that are more akin to hotel rooms than sharing economy holiday rentals. So if you think of Airbnb presenting itself as mum and dad renting out a spare room or a holiday property, well, this is actually more like mum and dad online rentals incorporated with a portfolio of properties that they rent out through Airbnb. So the coronavirus lockdown is pretty bad news for people renting out spare rooms for a bit of extra income. And Airbnb pretends that that's what its platform is used for. But it's a complete catastrophe for professional hosts who have built really elaborate and pretty precarious property empires off the back of Airbnb's market-busting rental yields. The key problem here that you need to understand is that Airbnb's hosts very often don't own the properties that they rent. These are rent-to-rent properties run by companies or individuals who take out loans to secure a number of properties on a long-term basis, knowing that they can get substantially higher rates by subletting them on through Airbnb and Booking.com. That's fine while the rental rates pour in from Airbnb, but right now, Airbnb is effectively closed for business. So how big is that problem for Airbnb? I mean, because obviously we were talking earlier about how none of us obviously own even our own properties, let alone any other ones. (laughs) How big of an issue will this be for Airbnb and its property empire? Yeah, and I should probably mention the enema analogy again. If you think of an enema as sort of a a cleansing process that releases stuff in your body that's not meant to be there. So in, in this case, Airbnb is the body that needs cleansing and um, what comes out in the enema is the stuff that shouldn't be on its platform. So there's a nice mental image for you. So let's take London as an example. In March, there were more than 87,000 Airbnb listings 
across the UK's capital city, according to analytics platform Inside Airbnb. 87,000 of those, 43,112, that's about half, were listed by hosts with at least one other listing. So this is a very similar figure to what we see across the whole of the United States. Interestingly, in London, I've mentioned before on this podcast, there's a 90-day limit on whole home listings on Airbnb, which is meant to stop people from renting them out like hotels. Irregardless, 43,112 people seemingly are. To understand the scale of this problem, you have to look at what happens as the number of listings per host goes up. So rather than having one or two listings, what if you have three or four or five or six or seven or 226? So in London alone, there are 2,919 Airbnb hosts with between three and five listings. That accounts for 10,318 listings across the whole city or 12% of Airbnb's total inventory in London. And just sit and think a little bit. How many people do you know in your life who own between three and five properties in London or have between three and five spare rooms that they could regularly rent out in London? You soon start to understand that these aren't spare rooms. These aren't second homes. These are holiday rentals. These are hotel rooms. At the higher end of the scale, it gets even more ludicrous. There are 645 hosts in London with 10 or more listings. Combined, these hosts are responsible for 16,758 Airbnb rentals in London. And behind each of these rentals, you get a glimpse of the real issue. These are tens of thousands of rental bills and mortgages that need paying and potentially the people who run them no longer have any income to do so. Yeah, so these um, sort of professional Airbnb hosts are are presumably relying on the income from several of their rentals. Um, Is is there anything they can do now that that's effectively just all been swept away? Panic. So this is why they're calling it the Airbnb apocalypse. There are all sorts of Airbnb influencers who sell seminars that you can attend, um, online courses, made themselves quite a name on YouTube They're really, really panicked by this. These people are leaving tens of thousands of dollars a month, potentially, across a portfolio of several dozen properties. It doesn't take much scale before the maths of this gets really out of control. So Airbnb, for its part, points to a $250 million fund to support with cancellations caused by the pandemic. Members of the Superhost Club, you might have booked yourselves a stay with a Superhost on Airbnb. Essentially, Airbnb gives them more visibility, earning potential and, quote, exclusive rewards. They have access to a $17 million fund to help with mortgage costs. But as Natasha was talking about with gaping, pussing wounds, this is, again, akin to putting a Band-Aid on a bloodbath. So it's not really a solution. We're talking about $250 million up against 7 million listings. The mass doesn't quite add up. So what's happened is these hosts feel like they've been abandoned by Airbnb, which also removed cancellation fees so guests could pull out of reservations without penalty during the pandemic, which effectively wiped out all income across Airbnb. Hosts have seemingly started to flee the platform. According to global data and analytics firm, Airbnb could lose a significant portion of its host community as a result of the pandemic. One, because they're fed up with Airbnb, or two, because they go 
bankrupt. Yeah, and sorry, that's that's actually reminding me that I need to uh, cancel a Airbnb booking um, for the next few weeks. <laughs> uh, you just saying that, um, and I actually feel a little bit guilty about sort of doing that because it's somebody's potential livelihood in a house that is very much um, a home um, that is being bo- that needs to be cancelled. But I mean, that's another point. But what, what does it? I guess what does it sort of mean uh, going forward for Airbnb? What does what does the future look like? Uh, are we going to see the see the the cleanse, as you put it, happening? Yeah, it's maybe better to think of it of what it will mean for cities. So, a lot of you listening to this podcast are probably sitting in a flat somewhere in a big city with sky high rents. You might not be able to get on the property ladder. If you take a look at the long-term rental websites that are local to you, you might notice that they've recently been flooded with identical one- and two-bedroom apartments right near the centre of your city that are replete with bedrooms adorned with neatly folded towels and prominently displayed Nespresso coffee machines, the hallmarks of an Airbnb that no one has ever lived in. You know, the ones with the kind of weird IKEA artwork and the slightly strange collection of books. All of a sudden... These properties are flooding long-term rental markets, websites, because no one is using Airbnb. Now, of course, the catch is no one is renting a new place to live. Everyone is kind of stuck where they are now, asking their landlords for extensions, and nobody is moving house in rental markets or in the buying property market. So there's a real bind here. The longer this goes on, the worse it gets because the liquidity problem for these hosts ramps up really, really badly. Now, if these hosts stay away, scared by the sudden precariousness of Airbnb's get-rich-quick scheme, this could have a really, really profound impact on its business. So one analyst I spoke to said the company can still be a success, but it needs to embrace the idea that it should be smaller in scale in the short to medium term. What do you guys think? So do you think this could have sort of a long term impact, especially in, you know, a lot of cities have complained that their rental markets have been um, completely um, transformed by Airbnb and that rents have been pushed too high because, you know, regular sort of long term rentals have been taken off to the market instead uh, put on Airbnb for tourists rather than, you know, residents. Could this be, you know, good for those cities that have been complaining about that? Yeah, and some of them are seeing it as a bit of an opportunity. So Prague, um, which is besieged by British stag and hen parties, um, has been really, really badly affected by Airbnb, particularly in its old town, which is all cobbled streets and bars and restaurants. And at night, unfortunately, um, stag and hen do's. So city officials in Prague have used emergency legislation brought in around the coronavirus pandemic to essentially push through legislation that will allow them to better regulate short-term rentals that are um, besieging the city. So there'll now be a register of properties, they'll be able to find out who runs them. And this is something that city officials across the world have been looking to do to try and regulate Airbnb for quite some time. But what this has really, really, really shown is that Airbnb isn't a sharing economy company. It does have that veneer, but beneath it is this big kind of cesspit of muck that, to go back to the enema analogy, needs flushing out. Um, I'm going to keep coming back to the enema analogy. Um, It's disgusting, yes, but it's also true. Um, So we could end up with the kind of Airbnb that we want. My kind of um, reporting over on Airbnb over the last several months 
isn't to suggest that this is a bad company. It suggests that it's a company that's grown too big too fast and has lost sight of that original mission that Brian Chesky, its founder, keeps on coming back to, which is community. Community only works if Airbnb is a sharing economy company. If it's just a hotel chain, then it needs to be regulated in a different way and it needs to operate in a different way and it needs to be honest about what it is. So as we were talking about with startups, Yes, there'll be some negative effects of this coronavirus pandemic on businesses all around the world. But for Airbnb, it could be an opportunity to take stock and think about what company it wants to be in the long term. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else we talk about on the podcast this week. Please do get in touch. Our third story this week is a bit of a handbrake turn, Matt Burgess, onto child abuse. Yeah, um, this is actually, despite the horrific nature of the subject, a, a positive story, something uh, that isn't related to coronavirus and has changed and hopefully is going to be something much better for the world. So there has been a major research breakthrough uh, over the last few weeks on a piece of work that has taken uh, a couple of years to be completed that will essentially make it easier for companies and organisations to remove uh, child sexual abuse images and videos from across the web. So researchers at the, at the Internet Watch Foundation, a UK-based charity that uh, takes down hundreds of thousands of uh, abuse images and videos um, cleaning up the web every single year, has uh, deciphered the sort of secret words and phrases that um, paedophiles and online offenders use as they share this illegal content. So over the last couple of years, its team of uh, 13 analysts and sort of seven or seven or eight tech experts have uh, been working um, to come up with a list of 4,000 words and phrases that are being used by offenders commonly. Um, these phrases, often known as keywords, can be used to describe what is happening in images and videos, uh, where they could be found, or even in some circumstances, individual sets of images and illegal abusive content. And in essence, it's been able to uh, unpick this secret language that has been used online um, by criminals who are trying to uh, evade um, the sort of uh, authorities. And They've, they've completed this work and it's basically a big step change in what they could do. So they cracked the code, but what are the words that paedophiles were using to communicate with each other? So, yeah, the sort of language that uh, this, this communication has been taking place in is pretty varied. So there are instances where some of the terms are obviously very explicit and would be understood by anybody. But the sort of thing that we're talking about here is more sophisticated behaviour by offenders that are trying to avoid the law and um, essentially come up with a way of not being it not being obvious what they're talking about. Um, so it's it's probably for the sort of more offenders that are going to be the ones that are sort of operating at the worst end of the sort of scales of this sort of thing. Um, and for obvious reasons, sort of like the, the keywords list that I've ever sort of put together isn't published, isn't sort of like made available to everybody because that would be signposting the sort of language that is used uh, publicly and people could obviously go out and look at that if they were in that mindset. So it would if it was published, it would sort of enable offending further. So um, it's all it's all kept very, very 
private. Um, but sort of the analysts at the IWF that were sort of doing this work it have explained um, that some of the words are very common. So it would be sort of like some common language that we use or might come up in everyday conversation. So one of the researchers there um, gave a hypothetical example. So it isn't to say that this is a phrase that is used for this type of content, but they um they gave the example of uh, purple cushions as a phrase. So that may be co-opted uh, by offenders and used to describe certain acts or behaviors or images um, that sort of like help to keep um, the type of images and abuse sort of private and hidden away. Um, and essentially um, these phrases, uh, some of them have been sort of like translated from different languages. Uh, some of them are literally just uh, sort of jumble of characters and very cryptic and not uh, necessarily could be understood by anybody sort of looking um, at just a, a random uh, string of letters. Um, and they can be used in sort of multiple uh, different ways. So uh, some offenders would combine different keywords, different phrases uh, to create a bigger picture to come up with something that is descriptive of a certain type of content or, or piece of uh, information or set of images. So it's, it's pretty much a, a just a weird, um, indecipherable um, set of language that is used online. When you say it, 4,000-ish words and phrases doesn't sound like an awful lot, but when you explain that they're using them in combination and some can qualify others, you quickly have a very, very complicated lexicon that's allowing these criminals to communicate in a very, very sophisticated way to evade the authorities. And this is the culmination of many, many years of work and cumulative technological advances that's allowed us to get to this point. So how exactly did the IWF do this? So it's a combination of uh, human expertise and also using machines and computers and technology to be able to sort of scale some of the methods that is done. So the IWF as an organization has existed for uh, over two decades um, and it has through its work, a ton of data on where images and videos are shared online. So to give you one small piece of context, last year it removed more than 100,000 URLs from the web uh, that involve this type of content, and that's in just in one year. Um, so when you're talking over multiple years, decades, obviously the sort of wealth of experience um, it has built up is, is huge. Um, and it also has essentially crawlers which go out and look at certain areas across the web which it has uh identified based on sort of its data and experiences and they go out and sort of scan websites for potential images or videos of child abuse based on sort of things that they've seen in the past uh to try and work out this type of content and basically they've repurposed some of their technology to analyze the language that is used around these uh, images and videos so it could be uh these phrases could be being used in um the metadata along alongside him that's attached to images so sort of like descriptions of the images uh name file names etc but also in the words and phrases that people um use as they post these sorts of things to forums or on uh online on social media or these types of places um and essentially that this sort of like 
effort of uh, scanning what was what's already out there uh, produced a very long list of keywords and then over the last couple of years uh, human analysts that look at this sort of content and classify it every single day at the IWF went through and verified all of uh, these 4,000 new keywords that they put into this keywords list um, and obviously that's pretty crucial because you don't want to create uh, false positives or um, or cases where you will basically end up um, censoring the internet. Um, so they've pretty much come up with like a very sort of verified list that has been a combination of humans and technology essentially working together to solve an issue. So this sounds like a really good step forward, you know, like the good guys catching up with the criminals, as it were. What, what could the actual impact of this research be? People always describe these sorts of breakthroughs and this sort of activity as uh, being in an arms race, which is a pretty cliched sort of phrase that's used. But obviously, sort of, there will be a result of this sort of language is being developed all the time by offenders. So they will be sort of changing things that they use and the way that they describe things going forward. But the IWF thinks that this will be a sort of huge step change for it and its member organisations. So before this sort of development of 4,000 new keywords that it's deciphered, they only had around sort of 400 keywords. Um, And these words are sent out to all of the IWF's members. There's over 140 of them. They include Google, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Big tech companies, law enforcement, uh, gaming platforms, um, pretty much like big companies that where information could be abused or shared. And these companies can use this keywords list to moderate uh, conversations that happen on its platform. So in like gaming forums or live streams or stuff like that, these words could be flagged up if they're being used uh, as where where images could potentially be being shared uh, and also sort of like search platforms can check that none of these things uh, come up in their search results uh, showing abusive content and images and essentially this is just allowing uh, investigators and analysts um, law enforcement to be a more proactive in the type of content that it's finding so they can go out and you search for these images and find where sorry these keywords uh, where they're being used and this is potentially uh, going to be with new types of content uh, abusive content that is being created So they believe that this is going to be something that is basically a big tool going forward to be used um, in, in detecting new abusive material and tracking it down, essentially. We talk quite a lot on this podcast about the problems that major technology companies, and I don't want to dwell on this for too long, the problem technology companies have in dealing with this moderation problem of getting content that we all agree is abhorrent off their platforms. But this shows what can be done with the right kind of cooperation and expertise. This is a major, major success. The IWF, the organisation behind it, Matt, doesn't tend to talk in sensationalist terms. It's very measured in the statements that it puts out around its own work. But even it is admitting that this is a really, really big deal and it shows what can be achieved. Yeah, it does. I think it is one of these cases where actually the changes that are made are going to make a very big difference because you're sort of talking about one of the key things is they have a big list of uh, previous images that they have sort of removed from the web and these are all hashed. So they all basically get a code um, that can then be searched. um, And if an image is previously detected images uploaded to the web somewhere, these hashes will sort of identify um, this content is being reshared. But this 
new development with the keywords is essentially getting under the skin of the human behavior behind some of this sharing and where this uh, content is being created and shared. And I think the key point is that it will help them to find new material, which can then essentially uh, lead back to sort of better victim support and identification and ultimately um, tracking down the criminals that are, are creating this sort of content. What lessons are there in this for the major technology platforms and any other comments that you've got on this story or anything else that we've talked about on the podcast this week to podcast at wired.co.uk. Once again, the email inbox was overflowing with your correspondence. Loads of you got in touch about doing a Wired podcast pub quiz. We're on it. We've got our own Zoom super user Supremo Kim Velia taking a look into this and we're going to work out how we'll do it technically and hopefully we'll have the details of that including a link for where you can go to sign up on the podcast next week so stay tuned for that. Vicky you've got one of the emails that we received this week. Yeah, Elliot wrote in to say um, that they've been starting to do pub Zoom pub quizzes weekly and it was refreshing to hear new ideas for rounds and formats on last week's podcast. They particularly like the advice on writing effective and fun questions because they say that they definitely fall victim to writing questions around facts they don't know the answer to themselves. It's a common pitfall if you're not an expert question master. Uh, Elliot says that one quiz they had this week had a flags round but every flag had its colours replaced with those of another country. And you got two marks, one for the original country's flag and one for the country that the new colours had come from. Elliot, that sounds very creative, but really, really difficult. <laughs> Natasha, you've got uh, another one of the emails we received this week. Yeah, so I got an email from Marcus from Christchurch in New Zealand who wrote to us about his dreams. So he says... Last night, I dreamt I was sitting on the nose of a dragon while it swung its head around. No further details. He also has dreamt about a zombie apocalypse, complete with an abandoned train track that could lift up mechanically to get the train away from zombies. Another one, because why not? He said that a shark was trying to attack him, but luckily his pet tiger was swimming next to him and bit it, so it swam off. So um, this is... I assume in reference to our article about how coronavirus has basically impacted our dreams um, and made our dreams go completely mad. So we did an article about this, basically said that a lot of the stress that we're feeling throughout coronavirus and the amount of sleep that we're getting means that our dreams are going completely mental. I've also had weird dreams. I will not share them. But um, yeah, it seems to be a big thing. Um, I recommend writing a book about it or keeping a journal um, so that you can remember your wild dreams about dragons in the future. That's, and thanks for sharing, Marcus. Good. If any of you, if everyone else wants to share their weird dreams, we did ask for it on last week's podcast and many of you delivered. Uh, do keep sending them in. Uh, we'll read out a selection of the ones that are the most podcast appropriate until you stop, I suppose. Matt Burgess, do you have any weird dreams you want to share on the podcast to tens of thousands of people? Um, okay, that puts me on the spot. Um, I have actually over the last <laughs> couple of weeks... You can just say no. I have over the last couple of weeks dreamt about um, colleagues a lot which is weird. I think it's being at home and there being less sort of like separation between work and home life. So if I end up working late into the evening uh, and then dream, uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's all I'm going to So say. basically you've been dreaming of us. Yes. <laughs> that's very nice, Matt. Thank you. It's, it's good to know that 
that we're with you when you sleep as well as when you write more great stories. Podcast at wired.co.uk with anything you want to get off your mind um, or any of your thoughts on the stories this week or if you just want to have a bit of a chat. We'll try and read out as many of your emails as possible on the show each week. For the meantime, thank you very much for listening as always. Stay safe and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.